0: Hi everyone, it's Trevor again from WN Movie Talk Podcast, formerly known as We Need to Talk About Movies Podcast. I am back today with another part of the definitive Spielberg collection. Now, if you remember, when I first started this podcast, way back when... I started looking at Spielberg films after watching the Spielberg documentary called Spielberg. And it chronicled all of his films and his career as well as his life. Well, I started that series and we visited the films of the 70s, which was Duel, Sugarland Express... Jaws, Closing Encounters of the Third Kind, and 1941. If you haven't already heard that episode, then please scroll back down. It's on there. Definitive Spielberg one. It's well worth a listen. Now, these reviews of each film come from an old YouTube channel that I used to have, where I used to do film reviews probably about 12, 15 years ago. So I'm going to continue using those reviews to look at the films of Spielberg's in the eighties. More, massive blockbuster hits but also tried to branch out and to do some more mature content films like the color purple and as i cynically put in my reviews you know was he chasing the oscar because best director oscar had evaded him throughout the 70s despite closing counters and jaws making some massive massive money and basically changing the face of cinema so some of the films that are coming up through the 80s, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. especially, would go on to become massive blockbusters. I think E.T. became the highest grossing film of all time. But there's another film in here that I will discuss, which in, it's not actually a Spielberg directed film, but he spent so much time on set that many argue that he was really directing it and that is the film Poltergeist which he certainly wrote he came up with the idea for the film uh, hired Tobe Hooper to direct it or Toby Hooper and then spent the entire time sort of on set directing from the passenger seat anyway I'll get on to those reviews in a minute bear in mind that they are taken from straight from YouTube some of the quality of some of the reviews may be A little bit dodgy, but you could still hear what I'm on about. Anyway, before I get into that, I'd just like to say that if you are listening to these podcasts and you are enjoying WN Movie Talk podcasts, and please, to help us out, to help us reach a greater audience, go on to whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Maybe you're signed into two or three, whatever. Just go on and please give us a five-star rating and help to share us leave us feedback whatever you can do to try and get us out to more people give us a five-star rating would be great and i think in some of them you can even give the episodes individual episodes five-star ratings so Even that would be great. Anyway, I digress. So I said that uh, this series of definitive Spielberg started when I watched a documentary all about Spielberg. Well, this week I have watched the new Spielberg film, The Fablemans, which is based on his early life, his home life, his mother and father, his upbringing with his siblings and also his introduction into filmmaking. Now, I watched this film. I wanted to watch this film for a long time. I've heard about it. And it really was awe-inspiring, and I thought, what a perfect time to what to revisit the films of Spielberg and continue his journey. So in this episode, we are going to look at Spielberg films through the 80s, starting with Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. Spielberg had just released and received critical backlash for his weak effort into comedy with the World War II flick 1941. Like closing counters and Jaws, it went way over budget and schedule, but unlike those movies, it failed to make as much money back. That was his slap on the wrist, and the young director promised himself that with his next feature, he would make sure that he completed the project on time and in budget. Discussing future projects with Star Wars creator George Lucas, Spielberg explained that he wanted to make a James Bond-style movie, a globe-trotting adventure. Lucas described to him an idea he had already devised of an adventure-seeking archaeologist who fit Spielberg's requirements completely, then known as Indiana Smith, and his search of the Lost Ark of the Covenant, based on the style of the old adventure serials that Lucas had loved as a youngster. Of course, Spielberg leapt at the chance, and the rest became history. What they created was an exciting and thrilling high-concept B-movie, with cliffhangers, laughs and excitement throughout. Romance and betrayal, good and evil, peril and magic that hit the mark with audiences the world over. By now, we all accept Harrison Ford as the face of Indy. The two are synonymous, but it was very nearly Tom Selleck who graced our screens. Luckily for us, his contract for the hit TV show Magnum PI meant that he couldn't commit. Spielberg suggested Harrison Ford and took a little time convincing Lucas, who could only see Han Solo when he thought of the actor. The movie opens well, with its precursors to the adventures ahead as Indy and his devious companion a young Alfred Molina make their way through the perilous booby-trapped caves to uncover the golden idol. The first series of shots our hero is in shadow, silhouette, or with his back to us, always walking away from the camera, his cool swagger and fedora hat being the only giveaway. The opening prologue is another of those iconic scenes of cinema, especially as Indy is chased out of the cave by the gigantic boulder. The pendulum of the film's plot is very quickly set into motion. Once back on his own turf, Indy's friend Marcus arrives with two bureaucrats who send him out on his adventure to locate the Ark before the Nazis, and Belloc, a rival archaeologist. From here on in, there is hardly a dull moment as the movie's fast-paced action and its frequent and hilarious comedy moments continuously bombard us. In fact, this movie has more laughs than any of his films to predate it. Especially when Indy is face to face with the swordsman, whose fancy blade work is soon put to a halt by an off-hand blast of a pistol. This scene is reported to have been written as an action-packed duel scene, but on the day of filming, Ford, who allegedly had diarrhoea and wasn't up to the scene, suggested, Can't I just shoot him? which received a laugh and was soon placed into the story. The film's various set pieces and stunt scenes are excellent and add copious dread and tension to the scenes that these days have lost their edge amongst the overuse of hard-to-believe CGI trickery throughout today's blockbusters. These various scenes really proved that Spielberg had mastered his craft, and could make some of the most awesome and exciting scenes on film. The highlights being the fight in Marion's bar as it burns to the ground, and the truck scenes in which an ever-persistent indie refuses to be thrown free. Karen Allen plays the love interest Marion Ravenwood, a great female counterpart for our hero as she gives as good as she gets, whilst at the same time often portraying a clumsy streak that alternately aids and hinders their journey. Lord of the Rings dwarf Gimli, the giant British actor John Rhys-Davis plays the part of Indy's ally Salah, a part that was offered to Danny DeVito beforehand. The film's villains are excellently skin-crawling, the venomous tote. Ronald Lacey, a member of the Gestapo, overseeing the uncovering of the Ark and indie, slimy French rival Belloc, Paul Freeman, are excellently cast and superbly portrayed, but how does this tremendous picture hold up as a Spielberg movie? What themes and motifs can we identify here in this action-adventure? Well, firstly, its hero is once again the man who has never grown up. His free-spirited sense of adventure and distance and ignorance from the commitment of a relationship with Marion makes him the story's Roy Neary. His down-to-earth alias as a mild-mannered teacher makes him more human, too, as well as his irrational fear of snakes. It's also set during the Second World War, the Nazis being the evil forces behind the search for the Ark. A fight scene takes place around an old World War II aircraft, and again is shot against the dusty background of the desert, similar to the shots in Close Encounters. Not only is Indiana allegedly named after Lucas's dog, the film is also rife with Star Wars references. The number on Jock's plane: OBCPO an obvious reference, as well as the Millennium Falcon sound effect as the plane fires into action. A little more subtle would be the hieroglyphics in The Well of Souls depicting C-3PO and R2-D2. Citizen Kane is also nodded at as the film's final shot of the arc packed up in the warehouse is based on a similar shot from Well's masterpiece. Spielberg successfully filmed Raiders in 73 days, and on a budget of $18 million, proved to himself and the studio that he could bring films in time, and with the allotted budget. The movie was nominated for 9 Academy Awards and took 4 away for sound, editing, visual effects and art set direction. Best director still evading Spielberg. Again John Williams' score helps to add layers of depth, emotion and excitement to the movie and another one of those theme tunes that will stand the test of time. Whenever I watch E.T. I can't help but recall the old days of VHS when everyone had a pirate copy of this movie. Well, it was such a long time between its cinematic release and its video release that some entrepreneurial criminal saw a gap in the market and quickly circulated a pirate copy. I don't think I saw the movie in its intended quality until it premiered on television one Easter, many years after its release. But even in its most distorted form, it was still a film that wowed me as a youngster. Filmed with the cover-up name of A Boy's Life, Spielberg's seventh feature told the story of a broken family, a theme that he was very familiar with and which he drew from his own parents' separation. With the father gone and mother distraught, the middle child is longing for someone to fill that father role, and he finds it in the form of a stranded alien that ends up in the back garden of his suburban home. The movie opens with no music as such, just moody, atmospheric sounds accompanying the alien purple font of the opening titles, before dropping us into the forest, where, through the trees and against stylish silhouette and Spielberg's favoured lights and smoke, courtesy of industrial lights and magic, we witness a pack of alien beings foraging. Their odd forms shot skillfully by cinematographer Alan Davio, in shadow and silhouette, picking up hints of light on their moist earthy skin. The beginning 20 minutes is excellently shot, and the choice of using minimum music makes it all the more believable, very similar to the opening scenes of Close Encounters, and completely creepy as the young Elliot investigates his visitor. A great sequence which includes a beautifully lit shot of the shed into which Elliot throws the ball, light pouring out of it. As well as the first moment that they meet face to face in the cornfield, and we see a brief glimpse of E.T., as well as hearing his peculiar scream. Spielberg skillfully resists showing us the creature until the very last possible minute. The touching scene where the audience and Elliot finally meet E.T. is beautifully accompanied by William's tender score, and the mimicking that takes place between the two signifies a link between boy and alien. It is reminiscent of the father son scene from Jaws. Characters of the Three Children, as written in Melissa Matheson's screenplay, are perfect, she really came to terms with the sibling rivalry and at the time their unity in the face of disruption, be it from the parents' separation or from their secret alien friendship. The Three child stars chosen to play the roles more than do the screenplay justice and really bring to life the disjointed family. As Elliot, Henry Thomas gives a hearty and emotional performance and with his simple innocent viewpoint becomes the best tour guide that E.T. could ask for. E.T. also feeds Elliot's desire to escape from being constantly sandwiched between tiresome big brother Michael and the annoying little sister Gertie. What still remains to be Drew Barrymore's most famous role, despite her success, Gertie is hilarious throughout, especially with her useless concealment of any secrets trusted to her. But out of all the children it's Michael, whose character arc is the most defined in terms of soul cleansing. He goes from teasing unbeliever and evolves into a true believer and Elliot's closest ally by the end of the movie. We also meet Baywatch and under siege beauty Erica Eleniak in a very early role as the girl that Elliot kisses in the school during the Liberation of the Frogs. Spielberg always seems to get such a great performance out of his child stars, as he first exercised with Carrie Guffey in Close Encounters. For E.T., Spielberg coaxed such believable performances from his child stars by freely filming the movie without his extensive use of storyboarding. He thought that too rigid a plan of action would affect the children's natural behaviour. He also filmed the majority of the story in the order in which the story unfolds, so that the kid's time of E.T. was in relative real-time. The emotion when he finally leaves is truly heartfelt. The story takes place in the suburbs, like Close and counters, and the lived-in feel of the house helps the audience easily identify and relate to the characters, although I do question the mother's judgement as she leaves her 8-year-old son in a house of his own and allows her older son to back the car out of the drive. Again, the director nods to the success of his friend's work, George Lucas's Star Wars, by now so engraved in the pop culture that it wouldn't seem real if we didn't see figures around Elliot's bedroom, as well as the odd Yoda during the Halloween celebrations. E.T.'s attraction came from a culmination of many aspects, but none so much as the unique form in which he was designed, the detail and excellent animatronics of Carl Rambaldi's amazing creation. Spielberg wanted the alien to look unlike any other, and to be in such a shape that the audience wouldn't think that there was a person inside. So his short legs and extendable neck helped create that illusion. The Alien was of course operated by a midget or two, as well as a young boy with no legs who played the drunk E.T. Also with E.T the numerous abilities that he possessed were designed to entice and mesmerise children as in healing, inducing flight and helping to rejuvenate plants. But the golden stroke I think is the link that is established between boy and alien something wholly original but at the same time effective, as it acts as another critical pitfall in the story, especially as his health deteriorates and he begins to take Elliot with him. E.T. was Spielberg's Disney movie, and some critics actually referred to it as the greatest Disney film that Disney never made. Re-released in 2002 as a special edition, the animatronically operated alien was remastered in the fashionable CGI of the modern day, allowing Spielberg to include some of the scenes that never looked good enough to make the final cut back in 82 as well as touching up some of those scenes that never quite lived up to scratch. This fad of revising old work is effective, but now when you watch the movie you can clearly identify the tampered scenes. In this version though there is still no inclusion of Harrison Ford as Elliot's principal. There are also subtle changes that you may not notice, but which Spielberg felt were required, like for example erasing the guns that the authorities carried. He felt 20 years on that there shouldn't be guns around children. Spielberg's theme of flight is something that pops up continuously throughout his movies, whether it's the planes of 1941, Empire of the Sun, or always, or the magic of flight is depicted in Hook, and here is the magical bike sequence, which has since become the famous logo for Spielberg's production company Amblin. Also his theme of having the authorities representing the bad guys, as in Sugarland, Jaws, Closing Encounters. Here it creates another sense of impending doom, the very intrusive adult world invading the simple world of children. Although when we finally meet Peter Coyote as Keys, he soon reveals to Elliot his true colours and takes up the mantle of another synonymous role with Spielberg's films, that of the Peter Pan, his whole life sculpted by a dream he had as a child, and one in which he could never stop believing. William's score here is a personal favourite of mine, It not only contains the identifiable fanfare of his adventurous brass section, but also its endearing piano marvellously signifies the bond between boy and alien. The end theme almost choked me when I watched the re-release at the cinema all those years after my childhood. It was so emotional a soundtrack that during its composing, Williams declared that he felt shameful for cranking up the emotion. When posing his feelings to Spielberg, the director replied, John, movies are shameful. The soundtrack became such a wondrous hit that when the special feature premiered, Williams conducted the soundtrack with an orchestra live in time of the movie. E.T. is another one of those iconic films that struck the right chords with so many people the world over. Another Spielberg triumph, full of his usual dose of wonder, excitement, humour and emotion. It soon became the highest grossing film of the year, a title which it held for a considerable amount of time. To this date, it is still Spielberg's highest grossing film. It was never marred by a cash-in sequel, and has become another momentous moment in cinema. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, taking away statues for music, visual effects and sound effects editing. Yet still, regardless of his craftsmanship and power to generate audiences and money never before seen, the best director escaped Spielberg's grasp once again. Some claim this may have been because of accusations of plagiarism by Bengali filmmaker Satyajit Ray, stating that his screenplay, The Alien, which was circulating in the States in the 70s, shared many of the movie's outlines and concepts. The allegations popped up just days before the award ceremony. The matter was settled out of court, but Spielberg still failed to claim his first Oscar. Maybe next time, eh? Okay, so officially on the records this movie is directed by Tobe Hooper, based on a Steven Spielberg story. But many believe that with Spielberg on set for the duration of filming, bar three days when he was in Hawaii with Lucas, that this movie was the film that he directed from the producer's seat. Although both Spielberg and Hooper have made statements to the contrary, many of the cast and crew have since stated otherwise. Tobe Hooper is best known for the successful low-budget horror The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and probably thought that this would be his big break into the mainstream when offered the director's seat under the globally renowned Spielberg. He was approached by Spielberg to direct a sci-fi movie that was to be known as Night Skies, in which a pack of aliens visit and harass a farmhouse and its family. Hooper had no interest and turned the film down, and eventually Night Skies was watered down to become the touching E.T. But Hooper suggested that perhaps they work together on something to do with the supernatural, and so Spielberg drafted the first outline of what would become Poltergeist. This movie doesn't mark the beginning of Spielberg's venturing into producing. Already it produced a number of films, including 1941 writer Robert Zemeckis' directorial debut I Want to Hold Your Hand, as well as his Used Cars, starring Kurt Russell. Then there was also Michael Apted's Continental Divide with John Belushi, actually the first feature to come out of Spielberg's production company Amblin. But I'm not talking about his role as producer, I'm talking about his role as producer of Poltergeist. The film certainly reeks of Spielberg. His fingerprints are all over it, traits and motifs that glisten throughout his features also very apparent here. We are once again observing ordinary people who have extraordinary events take place around them, a suburban family cosy in their new home, a brand new neighbourhood. Could be the nearies of Close Encounters or Elliot's home in E.T. Untidy bedrooms with toys on the floor, a father that hasn't grown up yet, a mother very much the headstrong one of the family. Even to the extent that our main characters fight to find their child, again is featured in Close Encounters and Sugarland. Here it is daughter Carol Ann, too eager to make friends of the unheard voices from behind the static of a television set. Regardless of and despite the fact of who did or didn't direct the movie, it still became a hit. I'm sure its promotion as a film produced by Spielberg had a lot to do with this, but how does it hold up today? More thrills than chills create the atmosphere for this ludicrous but enjoyable little movie. The opening scenes are a great introduction into the plot from the little girl talking to the spirits and declaring, they're here to the scene with the impossible chair stacking and the mother and daughter offering themselves a playful possession on the kitchen floor, cleverly shot and enthralling rather than frightening. However, from here on in it gets a little more ridiculous with every passing minute and eludes any thread of credibility remaining. Spielberg hired a true ghost expert to be on set as a guide for authenticity. He hoped that he could use their approval for the movie in the marketing campaign to help generate dread and lure in audiences. His plan backfired when the medium walked off the set, stating that the movie was as far-fetched as one could dare to go. Haunted toys, monstrous trees, portals through a cupboard into another dimension, but surprisingly there's still enough magic and well-crafted sequences, as well as all-round wholesome performances that keep us entertained. The parents of the family, Stephen and Diane, played by Craig T. Nelson, the T stands for Richard, by the way, and Joe Beth Williams both play their roles with laid-back naturalism that makes us easily identify with them. We see them, warts and all, normal people we can't help but like and associate with. The dwarf medium, too, with her sickening voice also is a highlight of the cast, and the scene in which her associate pulls his face apart is truly disgusting. I recall it making me wretch when I was a youngster. I also laugh at the television set being thrown out of the moteur room at the movie's end, a little gem of an ending. The final word of a movie that doesn't take itself too serious should be a joke, and it works. The children, Carol Ann, Dana and Robbie played by Heather O'Rourke, Dominique Dunn and Oliver Robbins also add a real quality to the movie. Their relationship to one another and to their parents could be a snapshot of any family. O'Rourke especially stands out in much the same way that young Drew Barrymore did in E.T and her role is memorable now for more than just her eerie performance out of the three child actors only robbins is still alive today in what would soon become known as the poltergeist curse the two girls both met untimely and tragic ends dunn was strangled by an ex-boyfriend shortly after the movie's release o'rourke would die after the third movie's release of influenza the movie would go on to make two sequels most of the cast reuniting for the second which was almost as good as the original, the creepy preacher man that takes a fancy to the young Carol Ann sends shivers down your spine. The third, set in a tower block, as I remember, seemed to have been made for telly. Spielberg had nothing to do with these sequels. (laughs) Sharing directing credit with John Landis, Joe Dante and George Miller, Spielberg's next project was The Twilight Zone the movie, a remake of the 60s series which had been a hit when he was a youngster. The opening scene, the Midnight Special by Credence Clearwater Revival, kicks off over the Warner Brothers logo, and not the ancient 80s logo. On the DVD I watched, it was the shiny, glistening digital shield. I was being deprived of nostalgia from the start. The opening prologue, directed by Landis, sees two men travelling in a car, one being Dan Aykroyd, the other Albert Brooks. After the tape-playing Midnight Special chews up in the car, they embark on a time-killing game of Name the Fiend Tune, eventually ending up on a conversation about the old TV series The Twilight Zone, corny link I know, especially as they go on to remember an episode with Rocky and Clash of the Titans legend Burgess Meredith, who will shortly become the movie's narrator. Then Ackroyd poses the question, do you want to see something really scary? Cue Rick Baker's excellent makeup, unfortunately shot with zero fear factor, and the classic theme tune begins. The first segment tells the preposterous story of a bigoted man played by Vic Morrow, angered in a bar and shouting off about Jews and niggers in a scene that is embarrassingly crass. As he leaves the bar he becomes trapped in some bizarre time-walk and arrives back in Nazi Germany as a Jew under persecution. In true Landis form he has hidden the words see you next Wednesday somewhere in the movie, here spoken in German by one of the Nazis. Then again Morrow leaps through times into the clutches of the KKK and then he eventually winds up in the jungles of Vietnam. This was to be the scene that stole the show, Landis's elaborate stunt sequence to challenge anything that the mighty Spielberg could do with copious pyrotechnics and a swooping helicopter as the racist Morrow tries to save two children. When the filming took place, many believed that Landis was like a man possessed. Despite reservations from many involved that the pyrotechnics could be dangerous so close to the helicopter, Landis dismissed their concerns. In fact, more pyrotechnics were set up. When someone asked if this was going to be okay, he joked, We may lose the helicopter. Vic Morrow had a premonition that he would die in a helicopter crash years prior to that fateful event on the set of The Twilight Zone. It was actually for a sequence in a TV movie. He was so certain that he wouldn't survive the day that he took out a specific insurance policy ensuring his family should be well looked after in the event of a tragedy during that sequence. The shoot went by without any hitch. His unjustified fear of helicopters became a thing of the past. The scene in The Twilight Zone was to involve Morrow rescuing two native children from the onslaught of the Americans. With one child under each arm, he ran from the waist-high waters of a swamp, the pyrotechnics going off all around him. The helicopter was knocked out of the sky and fell blade-first onto Morrow and the two children, obliterating them in an instant. What would follow was a dispute in Hollywood, a court case of manslaughter against the director, which ended nearly a decade later when Landis was acquitted of his responsibility. Something that they weren't tried for was the even more horrendous under-the-table deal that ensured that the children could act in the movie despite it being illegal to film with children after hours. They weren't supposed to be there. The Landis segment is hardly any competition to Spielberg's. It's the worst of the four chapters, shot with the most standard technology, coming across not as a cinematic experience so much as bad television. One critic back in the day quoted that Landis's segment was hardly worth making, let alone dying for. But that being said, Spielberg's segment wasn't much to shout about either. Spielberg was first to shoot the segment, The Monsters Are Duel on Maple Street. He chose to opt out of this segment after the accident, as it also involved nighttime filming with children. He instead he would an old episode called Kick the Can, drafting Twilight Zone writer Richard Matheson, who had worked once before as a scribe to Spielberg's duel. The tamer and gentler story that Spielberg chose to shoot starred Scatman Cravers as a travelling pensioner who arrives at retirement homes and helps the elderly residents revisit their childhood. It's shot with a more cinematic use of lighting and cinematography, and endearing as it is in a cocoon or batteries not included kind of way, it seems to me very much a cop out, especially as the director is renowned for chilling excitement. The scene is full of ladles of sentiment and cheesy and cringe inducing child actors, He could have stolen the show, but he bowed out. If anything, it looks like Spielberg tried to distance himself from the project and the horror of the Vic Morrow tragedy. He was reported to have asked to have his producer title removed from the credits, but the studio had decided not to can the film, refused him, saying it would give out the wrong message and help nail the coffin for all those involved. The third segment, directed by Joe Dante, was the first satisfying scene. We meet a girl in a strange town who knocks a boy over in her car, takes him home to his family. As soon as we meet them, cooped up in their house, watching cartoons, we feel that something is not right. We fear for the strange upbringing of this innocent child. As well as featuring Dante regular Dick Miller, the movie is instantly recognisable as a Dante segment. The wacky over the top sickly sweet family hustling around young Anthony to the soundtrack of the cartoon feels like gremlins in places. Dante's segment includes the two sequences that always spring to the forefront of my mind when Twilight Zone the movie is brought up in conversation. The shot with the hideous rabbit being pulled out of the hat, and the girl with no mouth. Okay, so the rabbit always seemed more frightening in my memory than the static rubber rabbit in the film, but it always stood out. Mad Max director George Miller is up next, his first real stab at Hollywood after venturing from his home turf of Australia. His segment in the Twilight Zone is a terrific start to a career in Hollywood, stealing the show completely. His segment is full of great techniques and atmosphere, a man with a dreadful fear of flying, haunted by a gremlin out on the wing, eating the plane. The claustrophobia of the airplane is complemented by Miller's use of handheld camera, and unnaturally close and cantered shots of its protagonist, and what better protagonist to fill this role than John Lithgow. Accompanying the gremlin on the plane is Joe Dante's Gremlin's fiend tune, in a precursor by the very same composer, Jerry Goldsmith. Miller continues to direct and lead us directly into the prologue, as we follow Lithgow into an ambulance and there behind the wheel listening to Credence Clearwater Revival is ambulance driver Dan Aykroyd, a tidy bookend to this untidy shelf of stories. It was strange to watch after all these years and I guess if it hadn't been for this project I may never have bothered, but it was surprising to see that two of my favourite directors from my youth, Landis and Spielberg, really didn't shine as bright as they should have here. After the astonishing success of E.T., Spielberg's next move is to direct his first sequel, pairing up once again with his old mucker, George Lucas, to film Indiana Jones 2, actually a prequel, and sees Spielberg honouring part two of his three-part promise to Lucas. A sequel that Lucas always saw as being the dark episode, something that Spielberg claims he didn't feel quite right handling. Black magic, voodoo, bloodthirsty rituals, enslavement of children, this certainly was a dark episode. In fact, this film was so dark that in order to achieve its target audience a new certificate was created in the States, the PG thirteen. Ford once again dons the Fedora, this time no Karen Allen, no John Reese Davis, no Denholm Elliot, no characters of real human substance. Here he's accompanied by the annoying short round and the even more annoying Willie. Like Raiders, the movie opens with a near identical dissolve from the Paramount Mountain, here to a mountain engraved on the side of the gong. The gong would soon be used in the opening scene to shield him as he dodges the bullets of the Triad's machine guns. This sequence was left over from the original screenplay from Raiders of the Lost Ark, as was one other spectacular scene a little later in the film. The film starts with a prologue detached from the bulk of the story, similar to the opening scenes of the Bond films that Lucas and Spielberg were loosely imitating. Here we meet up with Indy in the midst of a deal for a diamond with a Shanghai crime lord at a sophisticated nightclub named wait for the glaringly obvious and shameful reference, Club Obi-Wan. Okay, so maybe it almost sounds Oriental, but please, not as subtle as the various references in Raiders. And a memorable scene takes place in which a poisoned Indian and a hysterical singer, Willie Scott, the hero and director's love interest, cape Capshaw, They compete in a farcical chase for the diamond and the antidote for the poison. The sequence is a great start, a classic Spielberg scene of -of edge-of-the-seat excitement, a superbly choreographed set-piece exit via window and the rescue by 11-year-old sidekick Short Round blocks on its feet knowing exactly where to park and when. Ok, corny and convenient storytelling I know, but if you think that's bad then can I please stop here for just a second to divulge in a piece of useless movie information. As Indiana was originally named after Lucas's dog, Short Round was named after writer Willard Hayek's dog, and Willy was actually the name of Spielberg's dog too. What are these guys, completely void of originality? Anyway, Indy flees the country by way of plane, a plane owned by the very crime lord he is escaping, and one he has had arranged by Dan Aykroyd in a brief cameo and a horrendous British accent. The pilots escape, leaving Indy short Round and Willie to die, or escape via rubber dinghy and survive the fall into the Himalayas. And here the adventure, well I'd like to say it begins, but in all honesty it actually stalls here. The middle piece of this film seems really long to me, drawn out, slow paced. I notice that my son also got restless here too. It's nearly an hour into the film before the film actually feels like it begins again. They arrive at a village where the children have been taken and the villagers look upon Indy to help. One of the scenes includes two quintessential Spielberg moments, when in the Indian village Short Round dons Indy's hat and mimics him, as in Jaws, as in ET, and we see the shooting star flip through the night sky above. The gory Mill sequence, a standout scene that many love, is one that I didn't enjoy half as much as the scene in which a stubborn Indy and Willy both try to outweight each other in a flirtatious waiting game that actually signifies the beginning of the real adventure. Indy finally enters her room, but she really is the last thing on his mind. It's a great scene, well played and well written, with deserving laughs. Short round actor Jonathan K. Kwan would later go on to play another character of great comedy value in the Spielberg produced Goonies, and here is suitably acceptable in his role, giving weight to Indiana's human values. His protection of this orphan, if you can say that traipsing this child for all kinds of dangerous activities, is protection. Is this another Spielberg touch of using children in central roles to help bring the kids in as well as the parents? Capshaw here, as the damsel in distress is no tough broad like Alan's Marion from Raiders, but her performance is one of perfect comedic qualities. The girly girl, the gold digger, far removed from her luxurious comfort zone. She's extremely jumpish, squeamish, and everything that drives indie nuts and us actually. It all gets a bit much with her constant screaming. Here to help generate some real fiery love-hate atmosphere. An on-set romance was said to have taken place between Capshaw and the director. In several years' time he would go on to marry her, after his failed marriage to Amy Irving. Spielberg is still married to Capshaw to this day. William's soundtrack, Always a Pleasure, is here satisfactory but hardly standoutish. It was a time when I think he was so busy that he sometimes confused his work. As Indy enters the cave, the soundtrack for Empire's Dagobah system is really prominent. Unlike Raiders, this movie lacks the pace, the excitement, the thrill. Its predictable trapdoors and glaringly obvious setups ensure that we can see every surprise coming a mile off. The set pieces, whilst many are good, many here begin to feel a little long-winded, like most action scenes tend to be these days, and I find myself awaiting the end of the sequences, never quite gripped to see the outcome, always knowing that none of the main characters are going to die really kills that experience for me. The minecart scene was the other scene that was originally included in the screenplay for Raiders and one that has since inspired a Disney ride. And whilst it's quite literally a roller coaster scene, by now we've seen it or scenes like it replicated so often that it doesn't have the same appeal as it once did. In fact, some of the special effects in this film are really lame for the time. When the plane crashes into the mountain, for example, or when an Indian coer stood on the cliff face, these shots actually stand out as looking horrendously superimposed. And what is happening in that sacrifice scene? Rip out his heart bloody gruesome, then no scar, no blood, plus he's still alive as they drop him to his death in the fiery pit. I wonder if the director felt that the scene needed something else and added the shot with the heart after the initial shooting took place. So as you can tell, not my favourite Indiana Jones film. And there was a time when it was my worst Indiana Jones film too, but we all know what the old timers went and did nearly 25 years later, don't we? Not my favourite Spielberg movie either but one that still went on to generate a satisfactory response at the box office, actually breaking all records on its opening weekend, even if it didn't wow the critics. Spielberg too has always stated that this wasn't his favourite film either. He even said that there wasn't one single ounce of him in the movie, adding that he was purely Lucas's director for hire. But Spielberg always seems to have answers to justify or distance himself from his losses. To date, Spielberg's had unprecedented hits with a variety of far out subject matter. Killer trucks, aliens, sharks, adventure seeking archaeologists, UFOs. He virtually created the summer blockbuster, smashing box office records and helping to regenerate a studio system that was struggling to stay afloat. His was a success story unlike any other director before him, a unique talent for creating huge public and critical interest in a variety of movie genres. But with this phenomenal success, there still had been no recognition for his obvious talent in the form of an Academy Award. Some believe that this is why he chose to stray from the path of the fantastic and settle on the melodramatic with his adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize-winning The Color Purple, a period drama, the tale of Celie, a young woman brought up in the black communities of the Deep South. With Batman producers John Peters and Peter Goober initially scooping the rights to the book, Legendary music producer Quincy Jones was brought on board as a collaborator and it was he who suggested that they seek Spielberg to direct in order to get the movie shown in the widest audience possible. The book was one that Spielberg had read and despite its harrowing explicit content being a far cry from his usual themes the book contains themes of sex, violence and even incest. The director agreed to take on the project. The only catch was that he had to meet and be interviewed by Alice Walker, the novel's author, who had been promised final word by Jones. It was the first time that Spielberg had been interviewed for a job since Jaws. Despite Walker actually never having heard of Spielberg, the interview went well. The only film of his she had seen, or at least seen part of, was the Sugarland Express, and she admired that unbiased way that he had dealt with the main characters also had a great understanding of the novel, and the pair seemed to come up with the same ideas. Warning bells did start to ring a little for the author when Spielberg suggested that she should have a cameo in the movie, holding his baby son Max, an idea that confused her and showed the directors racial naivety. The movie, rooted in the Afro-American history, was soon under attack by black groups for such an important story being headed by a white director. Comedian Whoopi Goldberg was approached to play the lead role, Seeley, with vivacious television chat show host Oprah Winfrey offered the role of Sophia, incidentally the cinematic debut for both celebrities. The rest of the cast included Danny Glover as the abusive husband, Mister, and Margaret Avery as Shug, with an early and small appearance from Larry Fishburne, as he was once known. Goldberg does a tremendous job in bringing to life the timid Seeley, even though she wanted to play the more determined character of Sophia. For a lively and bolshy comedian to become such a meek and sheltered character was a great casting decision, and one that once again proves the age of old success of casting against type. That being said, I felt that Danny Glover's mister, although a good solid performance, and one of his first major leading roles, never completely convinced me that he was such a strong and domineering character. Whether this has anything to do with his always being cast as a good guy for the rest of his career or not, I'm not sure. If anything, Oprah Winfrey gave the most powerful performance in the movie. A larger-than-life portrayal of the headstrong Sophia is inspiring, and as we see the wind taken from her sails after a stint in prison, she manages to portray perfectly the shell of the woman she once was. You don't even realise that you're watching Oprah Winfrey for the majority. She really does become Sophia. On set, however, Oprah Winfrey felt she was shunned by the director, especially after she commented on a scene in which Harpo and Sophia fight, seeming like a cartoon, and so he banned her from viewing the rushes after that. Incidentally, that very same scene was cut from the final picture as a whole the movie for me was interesting viewing a dark story for the director and a brave attempt to branch out into more mature areas yet i can't help but feel he approached a project with a schoolboy's shyness watering down a story of hard times skirting over the violence with an evasive camera usually off screen or in long shot and exaggerating the few comical moments to an almost cartoon form so often feels light-hearted that we don't always grasp the pain that seeley must be enduring the director deciding to avoid the brutal truths of violence and sex of the book Unfortunately, misses the mark. Even though the colour purple sounds so distant from what you'd expect from a Spielberg film, it does, in fact, hold numerous traits of the director. Seeley, for example, is a stranger in her own world, never really being able to call her situation home. Not unlike Brody, who's an outsider on Amity Island. Or Roy Neary, seeking his true calling. Or E.T., abandoned light years from his corner of the galaxy. Seeley too, is separated from her family, her sister and children, and she forever searches for that foothold that she can call home soundtrack was not composed by john williams but here by quincy jones himself and if anything i felt that it let the early part of the movie down it seemed over dramatic sentimental it almost recreated a lame television mini-series and in places the film almost feels just like that hardly a cinematic experience however there are moments of greatness usually in the editing and most notably the scenes where Seeley finally finds her sister's letters and the editing process with deliberate confusion takes us from Seeley's world to the plains of Africa described in the letters. The scene where she first discovers the letters is lit through the back window. His motif of illumination is a typical shot for the director. Also, the scene where Seeley plans to cut her husband's throat while shaving him, edited together with Shug running to stop her, and shots of a tribal ceremony, is a masterful sequence, and its skillful cross-cutting by long-time Spielberg collaborator Michael Kahn reminds us that this is a movie after all. It's actually the end half of the movie that the director revels in, it's the joyous moments in the movie's final act, where scores are settled and characters find redemption in which the director's magic and the otherwise melodramatic score finally begin to fuse together nicely the scene in which shug leads the party to the chapel singing against the gospel choir is a scene that challenges the church of james brown scene from john landis's blues brothers it literally gave me goosebumps watching it also the movie's final scenes were as heart-wrenching as the final farewell in e t the spielberg motif of illumination again visible as the sun sets behind the characters Despite the film being recognised at the Oscars with 11 nominations, including Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey, not bad for first time actresses, Spielberg once again was out in the dark. Best Director seemed to be the only category not to receive a nomination. Even Jones's melodramatic and feeble Music School received a nomination. It's worth noting that many of the black groups who opposed Spielberg as choice of director were there to defend the director for not receiving his nomination. In the end the movie won no awards at the Oscars. The critics also were split. Most agreeing that it was a great film, and some mention that the movie was like a rose-tinted retelling of a gritty novel. But regardless, this was Spielberg's first real drama. And Spielberg himself said, this was his first stepping stone to becoming the director of Schindler's List. Spielberg may have made his debut in the realms of drama of the colour purple, but for his next feature he was to take it one step further, while still remaining feet firmly in Spielberg's preferred territory of fantasy and excitement. Empire of the Sun It's an adaptation of J.G. Ballard's autobiographical novel about a young boy, Jamie, living in Shanghai in a privileged family. As Japan invade, Jamie is separated from his parents, where he resides in abandoned mansions, rummaging for scraps before being captured and thrown into a camp. The story, written by J.G. Ballard, was said to have taken him 40 years to scribe. He said that it took him 20 years to forget his atrocious experience, and another 20 to remember again. The novel was an instant hit and became the interest of director David Lean, who was initially going to direct himself, with Spielberg cited as producer. But Lean eventually opted out, and so Spielberg got the okay to man the project himself, and with playwright and co-writer of Terry Gilliam's Brazil, Tom Stoppard, adapted the memoirs into a screenplay. In fact, in many ways this film is Spielberg's own spin on Lean's work. He borrows shots, themes and characters from numerous Lean-directed movies, including Oliver Twist. Basie is to Jamie what Fagin was to Oliver and bridge over the River Kwai. Like Captain Nicholson, Alec Guinness, Jamie also struggles to fully come to terms with which side he's actually on. Jamie loves the Japanese Air Force, he idolises them, he salutes them and cheers them on. Christian Bale only 13 when he played the role was an excellent choice, full of the pomposity and arrogance required to flesh out the privileged Jamie in the early parts of the movie, and with enough childlike innocence and naivety to carry us through the horrendous war years. He's not the usual cute child that we find in Spielberg's movies. He is in many ways a spoilt child, obnoxious, and as the guard declares at the end a difficult boy. We always view the world and the war through his young, immature eyes, much like the director too in fact. Spielberg's own obsession with World War II has so far never been one that truly delves deeply into the horrors of war, as much as it romanticises the great conflict. With Empire of the Sun, he almost makes that step, but when compared to the book, or even with his own Schindler's List, we see that he still refrains from going all the way. Certain scenes, like the scene where Jamie is chased by a young thief and hops from rickshaw to rickshaw, is set to William's fanfare score, and is a scene that I find ill-fitting in the movie, and almost makes light of the fear that Jamie must have felt. The scene in which we rejoin Jamie, years after his capture, sees him running around trading goods and the way in which Spielberg first introduces us to the camp hardly makes it feel like a prison camp at all, more like a theme park. William's score here feels too uplifting, almost like a feel good scene from a Christmas movie. For the most part however, William's soundtrack is excellently fitting and his use of a choir gives the film a more spiritual feel. The rest of the cast is made up by some great actors. Playing the American Fagin, Basie, is John Malkovich in a relatively early role. Basie becomes Jim's mentor. He idolises him, and it's no wonder as Basie dresses the same as the pilot on the front of the comic book Jamie reads early in the movie. It is Basie that renames Jamie Jim, and who teaches him the rules of survival, even if he is actually a self-centred scoundrel. It's a good role, and well played by Malkovich, but hardly a role that allows the actor to display the true complexity of his scope. He is accompanied by Joe Pantoliano, again in another role similar to the characters he plays in The Matrix and Memento, weasley and untrustworthy. Here he plays Basie's second-in-command, Frank, a cocky bully type, always trying to hold sway over the young Jim, but always knocked back down the pecking order by Basie. In fact, he sees himself as Basie's right-hand man, but Basie probably doesn't have a very high opinion of him. In the end, when Basie escapes, he deserts both Jim and Frank. We understand young Jim's tears, but Frank to holler like a baby only goes to define the pathetic side of his character and his reliance on Basie. A very early role for a gawky Ben Stiller also features here. He was just 21 at the time. Nigel Havers, best known for his role in Chariots of Fire, is another character who young Jamie looks up to, a doctor, and Miranda Richardson plays Mrs Victor, Jim's old neighbour who takes him in under her wing. Both characters find him hard to deal with, and it's this honesty that gives the film an extra depth of reality. Empire is ultimately a coming of age film, a story of innocence lost, and one that reflects the director's own growth. Like the colour purple, it is a drama of real emotion. But unlike the former it also gives Spielberg a chance to explore the fantasy of war and feature some great action sequences and some brilliant special effects. The miniatures of the planes are awesome and the bombing of the airfield is a phenomenal scene. The shot of the blast of the atom bomb also is a terrific effect and a moment of abstract beauty found in the horror of war. Cinematographer Alan Davio again returns to help create the director's vision, again utilising the golden sunsets and capturing beautiful silhouettes and lens flares throughout. The standout shots for me are the shot of Jamie touching the plane against the orange sparks that illuminate the background, or when the plane takes off before exploding as the Americans bombard the airfield. There are also moments of simple beauty, like the scene near the movie's end when Jim tries in vain to resuscitate the young kamikaze pilot. A single lens flare creeps into the screen every time that Bale ducks out of shot. A subliminal moment here also shows Jamie's former self lying in place of the pilot, and symbolises his lost childhood, taken by the events of the war, and never to return. It was the first Hollywood film to be filmed in the People's Republic of China, and shot on location in 21 days, again showing that Spielberg's earlier failures to stick to schedule really had become a thing of the past, and perfectly demonstrates the mastery and competence of his direction, especially when in certain scenes, 5,000 plus extras were organised and filmed. When the Academy Awards came around again the film was nominated for six but once again none of which were Best Director. Unfortunately the film took none home either. It wasn't even a tremendous box office success although it is a masterpiece and a great piece of work in the director's back catalogue he has tried to pull out all of the stops and again has failed. So maybe this is why he takes time out of the reality of drama for a while his next feature is going to be a step back into the territory that he knows very well indeed. It may not get him an Oscar but you can bet your bottom dollar that it will make some real money. The five year gap between Temple of Doom and the third installment of the Indiana Jones trilogy not only gave Spielberg time to flex his directorial muscles and test his worth in the realms of drama, but it also gave the creators some time to get together a screenplay worthy of production. Lucas worked on various ideas from a Haunted House to the legend of the Chinese Monkey King, working closely with screenwriters such as Romance in the Stone writer Diane Thomas, as well as Gremlin screenwriter Chris Columbus, who wrote several drafts. But Lucas still kept wanting to return to his original idea of the search for the Holy Grail, an idea that Spielberg was more than reluctant to delve into. Spielberg crafted the arc of the story around the idea that the quest was a metaphor for the paternal love between father and son and rekindling a bond that had frayed with time. Colour Purple screenwriter Menno Majes was called in to establish the story, with Inner Space screenwriter Jeffrey Bohm called in to write the final draft and Empire of the Sun screenwriter Tom Stoppard called in to tidy it up afterwards. Lucas pictured a bookish type to play the father. Spielberg pictured none other than former James Bond, Sean Connery stating that it was their love of Bond which set them to making the trilogy in the first place. So Bond really is Indiana's father. Lucas was eventually brought around when he saw Ford and Connery together. His version of Jones Senior that looked so limp on paper soon became so much more than anyone could have anticipated despite there being barely 12 years between the so-called father and son. The movie again starts with another dissolve from the Paramount logo and in an epilogue to the adventure, we meet a group of scouts riding through the canyons on horseback. Two break off from the group and enter a cave. One of them is the tragic star river Phoenix, as the young Indiana. But much like Ford in the opening of Raiders, the camera follows behind him, is kept in silhouette, filmed over the shoulder. This proves to be an effective device, as we see another adventurer dressed in Indiana Jones' trademark fedora another example of Spielberg's use of effective misleading deception. Phoenix and Ford had recently starred alongside each other in Peter Weir's Mosquito Coast. This scene not only introduces us to the young Indiana but also the history behind his phobia of snakes, his love of the bullwhip, the scar on his chin and of course how he came to possess the hat. Perhaps a little far-fetched and convenient to believe that it all occurred in the same instance, but it's forgiven as it makes for a fun sequence and a great introduction to the movie, and an early glimpse at the stern relationship between father and son. The third instalment does feel a lot more like Raiders than Temple did. It's much quicker in pace, propelling us from scene to scene with great set pieces and excellently crafted moments of comedy. The story begins when Indy receives his father's notebook, and as he sets off to save the old man, is inadvertently swept up on Senior's lifelong search for the Grail. But as the director stated, the journey is a metaphor for the severed bond between them, and the inclusion of the relationship adds layers of depth to the story, and also to the character of Indiana himself, as well as giving some fantastic comical moments of kinship between the two. I love the scene in which Indy arrives to rescue his father, from the moment Indy stands to attention at the call of Junior, through the point where Senior realises the book he posted back to the states for safekeeping was now back within the villain's reach, and to the final showdown where Indy casually guns down the thugs as is typical with this type of adventure, his father, new to the adventure and written against type, is horrified, saying I can't believe you've just done that, as they make their escape. home. Elliot and John Reese Davis reprise their roles from Raiders, although Elliot's Marcus plays more like a ridiculous cartoon character, a dotty old fool putting me in mind of Wallace from Wallace and Gromit, In fact the film is a lot more silly than Raiders had been, and sometimes the jokes are thin, or too inane to find anything but cringeworthy. The love interest here is not a screaming damsel as in Temple of Doom, nor a gutsy ally as in Raiders. Here she's the femme fatale, with strong interests in the Nazi party, allied with the villains and using her beauty as a way to get to Indy, and as it turns out, Jones Senior too. The end scene where Indy enters the booby trapped cave superbly mirrored the opening scene in Raiders and would have made a perfect bookend to a blinding trilogy until they went and made a real cash in sequel with crystal skulls. Again, the melting skull effect from Raiders is used here, as the wrong grail is drank from by the movie's villain. The in joke throughout the films, of Indy being named after Lucas's dog, is finally included here as Connery states at the movie's end that the family dog was called Indiana. In the wake of the film's success, Spielberg said that he made Crusade to apologize for Temple of Doom. Critics and audiences loved the movie, and it does bring a lot to the adventures, and I think that despite its moments of absurdity, it still remains as a highlight to the trilogy. Not quite on par with Raiders, but very, very close nonetheless. Whilst on the set of Jaws, Steven Spielberg and Richard Dreyfuss spoke together about a film that they both watched as youngsters. Victor Fleming's A Guy Named Joe, about a World War II pilot who was killed in action only to come back as a guardian angel to support another pilot. Dreyfus declared he had seen the film over 30 times and Spielberg admitted that it was the second film to make him cry after Disney's Bambi. One day, they decided, they would remake the movie. Fleming was also one of Hollywood's great directors behind such classics as The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind so if anyone was to remake the movie in a modern setting it seemed that Spielberg would be the man for the job. It was almost fifteen years after their discussion that the remake could finally see the light of day, when in 1989 Spielberg's Always was finally released. Its World War II context was changed for a modern setting, and the bombers became brave firefighting pilots. Romance in the Stone writer Diane Thomas was given the job of rewriting Fleming's original, and unfortunately her version never saw the light of day, as the writer was tragically killed in a car accident before completion. The final screenplay was credited to Jerry Belson, but again Tom Stoppard, who wrote Empire of the Sun, had been involved in tidying it up. The characters' names and some key scenes and dialogue were kept virtually intact from the original. The cast obviously saw Dreyfus in the lead role as Pete Sandich, the tragic pilot and once again a typical Spielberg character, the man who never grew up. The remaining cast was made up of Holly Hunter as the love interest Dorinda Durston, another strong-willed woman. John Goodman as Pete's friend Al Yaki and an unknown actor Brad Johnson as the young pilot Ted Baker that Pete is there to look over in his heavenly guise. Also Hollywood leading lady Audrey Hepburn would play the role of Hap, the spirit that receives Pete's soul and sends him on his new mission. It was to be her last role in a movie and she donated her entire $1 million fee to UNICEF Dale Dyer Captain Harris from Platoon the man behind the gruelling boot camp for Oliver Stone's cast also features here as the fire boss. He would go on to recreate a similar boot camp for the cast of Spielberg's saving private Ryan several years later. So with Spielberg's masterful direction, his love of flight and fantasy and an emotional flair that he had displayed in his earlier films, always was set to be one of the greatest love stories ever told. But it didn't really pan out like that. The opening shot, two fishermen on a lake dressed in a hunting get up, sit lazily in a boat, when all of a sudden in the background a giant plane swoops down to the surface of the lake scooping up water before climbing back into the sky once again in the nick of time and sending the fishermen ducking for cover in their small boat. A beautiful shot, a great Spielberg moment and a wonderful start to the movie. But from there on in, the movie never really struck me as a riveting watch, in fact it struggled to hold my attention. The story was relatively lame it didn't seem to have a very strong narrative structure, it almost leaped from scene to scene rather than flow, and the emotional character arc seemed thin. The film was full of moments of silliness, and comedy that felt staged and ridiculous in amongst a story that slowly ticked over. It could have been directed by anyone, even William's score was mediocre. The story sees Dreyfus's character f- refusing to grow old, faces fears, anxieties and emotions in life but then, as a spirit viewing the world he left behind, he has no choice but to confront those emotions, especially when Baker, the man he has been chosen to guide through the perils of life, falls in love with Dorinda. Trafus was certainly the man for this role. As usual, he is easy to watch, and the banter between him and Hunter, and Goodman, give a real human quality. But I feel the emotional scenes he has with Hunter, especially after his demise, hold very little sway. You can't help but think that Hunter stands motionless for far too long whilst he talks to her. In fact, one of the strongest emotional scenes comes from Hunter and Goodman, where he shouts at her to come back and stop running away from her feelings and loss. While the performances were solid for the most part, the movie's two hour plus duration felt so much longer. It wasn't an awful film, but its director failed to enthrall as he had with the majority of his movies before. He opted out of having Dreyfus's ghost to be an effects-laden spirit. Declaring that walking through walls, floating and glowing would have only detracted from the emotional punch that he sought after. Unfortunately, he failed to achieve that emotional punch at all. One year later, airplane director Jerry Zucker would release the Patrick Swayze Demi Moore romantic film, Ghost. And I bet Spielberg kicked himself as Zucker's movie, full of the ghost effects, comedy and thrills, managed to achieve exactly the level of emotion that always missed by a long shot. The film was released in the same year as The Last Crusade, and whilst a far cry from the financial success of Indiana Jones' latest outing, it wasn't the flop that many consider it to have been. still made money at the box office, but over the years has become one of the director's forgotten movies. The movie didn't even receive a single Academy Award nomination, despite its December release, usually the ideal time to release a movie for Oscar consideration. But if this movie was one that many Spielberg fans, found to be a lame duck of an almost faultless career, then his next feature was going to discredit the director's name even further. So, there you have it. That was Spielberg's films of the 80s, as reviewed by myself in the noughties, there is more to come, but I only got halfway through the nineties and I stopped. So I'm gonna have to catch up on some films, I think, if we want to continue this series. But it's quite interesting, wasn't it? I thought it was quite interesting looking back at those old reviews, quite in depth, wasn't I? Short but punchy. If you did like them, like I say, please give us a five star rating. Drop over to Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash WN Movie Talk Podcast, and uh, where I share this post up there. just leave leave us a comment it would be great to hear from you anyway that's all we've got time for for this week another week so i'll see you all again very shortly with more wn movie talk podcast chase